Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 in a little while. I'm going to start out by reading a verse from Revelation chapter 13, and then we're going to kind of go on a little bit of a journey together. So last week we started a series. John, if you want to throw the series graphic up, you can. Last week we started a series called I Know Nothing. And the original idea for the series was born out of the place of frustration, me talking to God in a position of frustration. But as I began to pray through this frustration, I began to realize that there was something in it that God was wanting to use to edify myself and and his people. And so we began this series from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul is writing an epistle to the church at Corinth. And if you guys remember, the church at Corinth has a plethora of problems. Everything from immorality to heresy to incest to division to lawsuits to church structure to Christian celebrityism and the list goes on. And Paul, instead of just approaching that situation and writing them off and saying, you've got too many problems, God can't do anything with you, I can't do anything with you, have a nice life... He takes time to walk them through this. And that gives me some hope. That gives me some hope because sometimes I feel like I'm not worth the effort. Come on, church. How many times in your life you felt like you're not worth the effort? If you haven't, then get off your high horse because you're on the other end of the extreme and you're a little bit too prideful. (laughs) I'm serious. If you've never had a moment in time in your life where you feel like you're the scum of the earth and you're not worth the effort, then you probably think that, you are 10 seconds away from them erecting a golden statue of you, okay? And and both are bad, (laughs) okay? Both are bad. But it gives me hope because Paul doesn't write off the Corinth church. And if he didn't write off them with all their problems, then God's not going to write me off either. And then he goes and he begins to deal with all their problems, but he does it from the foundation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says, I resolve to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolve to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't say, I don't know anything. He said, I'd made a choice, a covenant, a pact with God that I wasn't going to know anything outside the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we have began a series following that trajectory with Paul saying, hey, for the next several months, we're not going to preach anything except for the person of Jesus and the work that he accomplished. And in order to start that, we have to start at the beginning, right? No, we have to start before the beginning. And in order to start before the beginning, we have to start at the end. (laughs) I'm just, that was being silly. In Revelation 13, 8, it says this. It says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain 
from the creation of the world. In order to start a series on the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have to start in eternity past. We have to start before the world was ever made. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before that ever occurred, because it wasn't in the beginning of God, God has no beginning, that was the beginning of the heavens and the earth. Before Genesis 1-1, before God ever said, let there be light, something had already occurred. There was a covenant established in eternity past. Not a covenant between God and man, because man wasn't made. So it couldn't have been a covenant between man and man, or man and angels, or angels and angels, because they weren't made yet either. A covenant was established between God and God. God made a covenant with himself. And it's called the covenant of redemption. It's called the covenant of redemption. See, the lamb was slain before the creation of the world in the heart and the mind of God. God did not react in Genesis 3 and say, Oh no, my creation fell. What am I ever to do? No, God already knew it was coming. And He had already made the provision. Already crafted out the plan of adoption. Already knew how redemption was going to be purchased. Your name was already mentioned in the heart of mind of God long before He ever said, let there be light. He said, there will be a faith and she's going to be invited in my covenant. There will be a carol, she's going to be invited to my covenant. There will be an earl and he will be invited into my covenant. There will be a Ted. There will be all of these different, all of you guys were mentioned in eternity past in the heart and mind of God as being recipients of the invitation to participate in His covenant of redemption. Before we get into Ephesians chapter 1, I want to take a little brief detour. John, will you throw that image up for me? This right here is an image that was painted in the early 15th century by a Russian named Andrea Rublev. I don't know if I pronounced that right. And you're probably wondering, what in the world? I don't usually preach like this. I don't usually preach off of an image. But for today... I wanted to, to share this with you because I couldn't get it off of my mind. This image is what's known as a Russian icon, and it was painted, and then the whole thing was overlaid in gold. And it depicts a scene from Genesis where Abraham hosts three angels. And the three angels in the picture you have in the top left corner, I don't know if you can see that or not, but it's Abraham's house, and then it's the Oak of Mamre, and then it's Mount Moriah. And then you have the three angels that are seated around a table with a cup, and in the center of the cup, that little fuzzy scribble right there is the head of a calf. The sacrifice that Abraham offered up for his three hosts. That's what the painting illustrates on the face value. But the reason I wanted to show you this is because just like in the scriptural account where there's chalked full of allegorical meaning and spiritual representation, he is one of the few artists that I've ever seen that was able to take that spiritual representation of the story and communicate it through art. And all of the spiritual significance of the Genesis accounts are contained in this painting, and we're going to walk through those. So the three angels actually represent the three members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. Now, I'm not saying that in the Genesis account that Abraham is visited by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No. 
He's visited what I believe by the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, as a pre-incarnate manifestation of the person of Christ and two angels. That's why the two angels went on to Sodom and Gomorrah and the third person did not because that was the pre-incarnate Christ coming to converse with Abraham. But what they do in the story is they represent this idea that God is never divided in any action that he does. Everything that God does, he does in perfect harmonious unity. It is never God the Father against the Son and the Spirit. It is never the Son against the Father and the Spirit. It is never the Spirit against the Father and the Son. Everything that the Father does is supported and accompanied and helps to be accomplished by the Son and the Spirit. Everything that the Son does is supported and accomplished by the Father and the Spirit. Everything that the Spirit does is supported and accomplished by the Father and the Son. Everything that God does, He does in perfect unity. There is no disagreement in the Trinity. And that is communicated in this painting. If you look at the outside curvature of the bodies of the angels, they form a circle. It's kind of hard to see, especially in the image being far away, but if you look at the shoulders up around, the three angels, they form a circle. The circle is a symbol that we use to represent the Trinity because there is no break, there is no deviation, there is no corners, there is no separation. It's perfect flowing unity within the Trinity. And in the center of the circle is a cup with a calf head in it. The calf was a sacrifice and it's the head of a sacrifice. If you need more allegorical representation of Jesus, I don't know how you'll find it. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, and he is the sacrifice. But because the, uh, the illustrator was so intent on his message being communicated, he chose to put the head of the calf in a cup. When's the last time you've seen a calf's head fit in a cup? <laughs> it doesn't happen. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to communicate the Eucharist or the communion of the Lord's Supper. And so he used a cup representing the cup of the new covenant, the wine of the new covenant. This cup, take drink, do so as often as you do this in remembrance of me. He was communicating that if you didn't get the head of the sacrifice being a representation of Jesus, surely you'll get the fact that it's a sacrificed head in a cup. It shows that in the middle of the circle representing the Trinity, the sacrifice, the redemption, the atonement is right in the middle. This is an illustration of the covenant of redemption being shown to you. And it all revolves around the sacrifice of Jesus. And it goes further. This guy on the the left hand side. He's clothed in gold and blue. It represents divinity in the heavenly bodies. He represents the Father. And his hand is like this. His hand is blessing the cup, but pushing it towards the second person, and the, uh, the second angel. And guess what? The second angel is robed in brown and gold and blue. The gold and blue, celestial divinity and heavenlies. But the brown represents his ties to the earth. That he is the God-man. The second person in the middle represents Christ. And guess what? His hand is reaching for the cup. Almost as to say, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not what I will. Let your will be done. The Father blesses the cup and passes it to the Son, showing that He ordains the plan of redemption. The Son reaches for the cup and accepts it, showing that He accomplishes the redemption. And the third person on the left or on the right represents the Holy Spirit. But look, you have the one angel 
the Father looking towards the Son and the Son looking towards the Father. Their gazes are interlocked. But what is the Holy Spirit, the one representing the Holy Spirit, what is He looking at? He's looking at the sacrifice because it's not His job to look at the Father or the Son. It's His job to take what the Father ordained and the Son accomplished and to appropriate it to you. The Holy Spirit appropriates the sacrifice of Christ, the plan of the Father, and appropriates it to you. And it goes further. It goes further. The, now, since we went from left to right, let's go from right to left. You have the mountain of Moriah. You know what happened on this mountain? God spoke to Abraham and He said, Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and go to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering to Me. And Abraham took Isaac and they went to this mountain. And Isaac said, Father, I see we've got the wood and I see we've got the fire and I see we've got all the stuff, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said these words. He said, God will provide Himself a lamb. That's where we get the name Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Then over to the left, you have the Oak of Mamre. This is where Abraham met with the three angels. When he met with the three angels, it was in the heat of the day. It's a reversal for when God came in the cool of the day in Eden right after the fall. In the cool of the day, God came and He re- recognized the fall had occurred and He pronounced the curse and judgment. But it was reversed in the heat of the day when the visitors come to Abraham and establish a new covenant. And then you have Abraham's house on the far left, representing his dwelling place. And it shows us that if we want to go to the tree of life, we have to go through Mount Moriah. We have to go through the offering, the sacrifice of the Son, to get to the heat of the day, which is the tree of life, the reversal of Eden. And then if we go through the sacrifice of Jesus and through the tree of life, then we get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of that is communicated in this painting. And it's important that you realize this because this all happened in the heart and the mind of God before creation ever occurred. Before God said, let there be light, He said, let there be salvation. Ephesians chapter 1. You can take the image down now, John. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read some verses and then we're just going to talk and we'll see where we go and how far we get. We're going to start in verse 3. Ephesians 1 verse 3. It says this, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, have been, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If that, those verses right there can't make you shout, you may be shoutless. I mean, you may be shoutless. I mean, Paul starts this off and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly realms in Christ. All spiritual blessings. All of them. And when we're talking about spiritual blessings, we can go for miles and miles, but let's just talk about a few. When I say the word justification, I mean that you've been pronounced innocent. When I say the word redemption, I mean that you've been purchased. When I say the word regeneration, I mean that you've been born again. When I say the word salvation, I mean that you have been saved from an eternal condemnation or an eternal judgment by fire. All of those are different ways to saying the exact same thing. That God created a plan of adoption to make you who were not His own, His own. And He did so before Adam ever fell. God is what's called omniscient. Omni is a prefix meaning all. Shient is from where we get the word science or knowledge. God, meaning God has all knowledge all of it every historical event that's ever occurred god knows every form of natural knowledge or mathematical scientific knowledge god knows he also has what's called middle knowledge or what would happen if circumstances were different hypothetical knowledge if you had been born in australia or if you had become president of the United States. He knows all of the playouts of how that change and affect circumstances. He has all futuristic knowledge of everything that is going to happen. There is not a single thing that is hidden from his knowledge, from his sight and from his mind. Everything is known to him. The author of Hebrews says it's all naked and bare to him with whom we have to do. And if he knew everything that would unfold and everything that would happen and still establish the covenant of redemption in eternity past. What love is that? I mean, think about this. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Christian or not, I, I know the majority of you, the majority of you are Christians. Some of you I don't know well enough to know one way or the other. But whether you're a Christian or not, you have been chosen, you have been invited to participate in God's plan of adoption, in His plan of redemption, in His covenant that was established before He ever said, let there be light. You were invited and chosen to participate in that. And you know the mistakes you've made. You know the sins that you've committed. I'm not talking about since you became a Christian and tried to clean up your act. I'm talking about before you ever said the name Jesus. All the sins that you committed, whether they were 40, 50, 60 years ago, everything that you've ever done, and even since becoming a Christian, every mistake you've ever made, every time you've ever fallen short, 
every addiction you've ever succumbed to, every foul word that you've let escape your lips, every thought you have ever had travel through the corridors of your mind, that alone should scare us. Thoughts have a way of being crazy. God knows everyone. And yet you still got the invitation. You still got the invitation. And it wasn't because God had to. It wasn't because he was obligated. I mean, God could have just said, oh, Adam sinned. Let's start over. Because he created Adam without sin. He could have said, oh, she's not going to live up to the mark, so I'm just not going to allow her to be born. She's just going to die in her mother's womb. Or maybe she's just never even going to make it that far. Maybe her parents won't even be born. But he didn't. I know the things I did before I became a Christian. And I look at that, and without even factoring in God's futuristic knowledge of all the mistakes I've made since I became a Christian, just looking at the things I did before I became a Christian, I'm like, good God, how could you have ever invited me to become into your family? And then how could you have ever called me to be a vessel to communicate your word? I'm not worthy of that. The good news is, is nobody else is either. But in eternity past, he knew all of that. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all agreed that you were worth it. Not because of how valuable you are, but because of how much love he has. That's good stuff. And see, many of us, especially people outside the church or people that don't really get study the word deeply that just read it surface value we maintain this idea of christianity and come on you know that you've probably thought along these lines at one point in time whether practically or actually believed them we look at it like this the father god god the father is like some harsh tyrant that has his law that's been violated and he's angry And he's mad. And he wants to strike down all the people that have committed cosmic treason against him. And so he gets his Zeus-like lightning bolt. And he's just waiting for you to mess up again so he can strike you down. And then Jesus, who's like the form and embodiment of compassion and love, like pulls this, I don't know, this Mission Impossible dive in front of the lightning bolt right before it strikes us. That's how a lot of people have looked at salvation. They look at it as some form of like divine child abuse where God struck down His Son instead of striking us down. And that God's just angry all the time. That's not what happened. And look at the Ephesians 1. It says, for He chose us. Who? God the Father chose us. God did it. He ordained the whole thing to happen. And He chose us in Christ, meaning that He ordained the whole thing to happen and chose to have it flow through His Son. And the second person of the Trinity wasn't begrudging and taking the task of atonement on. No, He willingly submitted Himself to the ordained plan by the Father and came to the earth and accomplished redemption on our behalf. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. The Son accomplished what the Father ordained. It wasn't God wanting to strike us down. It was God knowing that He had all judgment and all power 
and all justice that needed to be satisfied because He is perfectly sinless and spotless and holy and righteous in every way and He could not allow sin to come into His presence. And so in eternity past, when they're sitting around and they know they create Adam, they, they create the angels and the angels are going to fall. They create Adam and He knows that Adam and Eve are going to fall and that sin is going to flow through the ranks of humanity on and on and on until the culmination of all things and the eschaton and the end times comes. He knew then... We have to have a plan of redemption to purchase them back. We have to have a plan of redemption to purchase them back. And here's what it's going to require. It's going to require a propitiation, which is a big word that means something similar to mercy seat. It's an exchange. It's something or someone that can take their sin from them through expiation, horizontal transfer, someone that can take their sin from them and then bring satisfaction or payment vertically to God. And the second person of the Trinity, I can almost imagine how this happens. The second person of the Trinity says, Father, if it be your will, I'll do it. And when he comes to the earth, he knows from the very get-go his plan. He knows from the very get-go. I mean, he's 12 years old. And he says, don't you know I must be about my father's business? Caesarea Philippi. He immediately, you know, as soon as the confession comes out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Immediately he begins to teach them concerning how he must go to Jerusalem and die, offer himself up as a sacrifice for the people and their sins. It wasn't just there. All throughout the Old Testament, you have all of these prophecies that point to the coming of the Messiah, to be the coming of the one who will take our sin and bring us deliverance. And guess what? He does it all in love. He does it all because His justice must be satisfied, but because He is so loving and so merciful and so compassionate and so generous and so filled with grace that He will not just wipe us out. That would satisfy justice, but it wouldn't satisfy His love. That can only be done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to of other faith-based religions, particularly a debate I had with an Islamic missionary. And the one thing, people give all this advice on how to debate with, with Muslims, but the one thing that he and I collided on is he's like, I don't understand Jesus. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. You've got your 99 or 100 attributes of Allah or whatever. And he had the list, the poster there in his, his room. And I said, I pointed to one. And I said, this says justice. He said, yes. And I pointed to one. This says perfect. And he said, yes. And I pointed to one. And I said, this says forgiveness. And he said, yes. I said, how can he forgive and still be just? He can't. You can't just sweep it under this cosmic rug. It has to be accounted for. Only through the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ can justice and love and mercy coincide. And therefore, out of that, forgiveness can be offered. And all of this was settled before God ever said, let there be light. He said, let there be salvation. He chose you, knowing who you were, knowing who I was, Knowing the mistakes I made. Listen, since I've become a minister, I have made so many mistakes. I always say this experience only means that I've had more time to make mistakes than somebody else. That's all experience means. 
And God called me to ministry knowing every single mistake I would make, knowing the times I'd want to throw my hands up and quit, knowing the times I'd fall flat on my face. And he still issued the call. And that calling is without repentance. It doesn't mean that I can't turn away from it. It means that God won't. And the same as that calling is without repentance, his invitation to you is without repentance. As long as Jesus Christ is seated on a throne of mercy, the invitation stands. Now your heart may be hardened through your sin and through its deceitful wickedness and you may end up through your own decision engaging in what we call a reprobate mind and a reprobate heart where you choose sin over and over and over again and finally God says, I let you have what you choose. But that doesn't mean the invitation ever is rescinded because it's not. He chose you. He called you to participate in the plan of redemption. And that calling is without repentance. He will not turn away from that calling and that invitation. But let me make something perfectly clear. This is not a Calvinistic, predetermined, you have no free will call. That's not what this is. I used to believe that. I have preached that and I was dead wrong. There are people out there that will say, if God chose you before the foundation of the world, then you have no free choice now. That is not true. That is not true. Because what God actually chose was He chose to set up the covenant of redemption, the plan of adoption. And He chose to extend the invitation. So He chose you as a participant in the plan of adoption. But the choice to participate and to be included still rests on you shoulders still rest on your shoulders you absolutely have the ability to choose or to decline the call God won't repent from the calling and from the invitation but you can just the same way you can run from his call on your life in a prospective area of ministry you can run from his call and his invitation on your life for salvation and redemption If you don't believe me, let's just settle the conversation once and for all, shall we? Down in verse 11, it says this, it says, In Him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with His purpose or with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. Right? All that's beautiful. That's beautiful. We're chosen for the plan. But it doesn't stop there. He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. What? You were chosen before the foundation of the world, but guess what? You're not included until you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal. You were included You received the invitation when you heard the gospel because this book contains the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's from A to Z, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation. Everything in this is the gospel. It points to the gospel. Some stuff you have to see, it points spiritually or allegorically to the gospel and some stuff tells you outright. But this whole book from A to Z is the gospel. And when you hear this, That's when you are included because you have received the invitation. 
And when are you sealed? When are you marked? When you believe. When you believe. I wasn't going to turn here, but I'm, I'm going to jump over here. Romans 10. Romans 10. Let me see where I want to start. Maybe we'll start around verse 8. Yeah, we'll start at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, pronounced innocent. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's when you're included, when you believe and you confess and you profess. That's when you are marked and you're sealed. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then it goes on. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And it continues on, and it goes on to talk about the word of Christ which brings faith. But the point is, is they have to have someone bring the message and present it to them. They have to hear the message. And then they have to make a decision to believe the message. And when they do, and they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, then they're included and they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That person from the image that we had put up, you don't have to throw it back up, but the image that we had put up, the person on the right-hand side representing the Holy Spirit that stares at the sacrifice, waiting to appropriate it to you. Guess what? It doesn't get appropriated until you hear the message and you choose to believe. That's when you're included and that's when you have the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit come and appropriate everything that Christ accomplished. What did Christ accomplish? We've said it a hundred times already. Christ went on your behalf. He came and He lived the life you never could. That is a life completely free of sin and never succumbing to temptation. And then He took that and He went to Gethsemane. And there in Gethsemane He prayed the prayer and He said, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. Let this cup, the cup of Your wrath, the cup of Your judgment on sin, the curse, the weight of it, let it all come on me. And He became, He who knew no sin became sin, that You might become the righteous of God in Him. He became a curse so that you might be redeemed or freed from the curse. As it is written, curse is every man that hangs on a tree. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Galatians 3.13 showing us what He accomplished in Gethsemane. And then He went to the cross, and there as your sin and as your curse, He was nailed to the tree and He was crucified. And He died and was buried. And then on the third day, He rose from the dead. And that new life that He stepped into is the invitation for us to step into that life and become participants with Him eternally. I'm not talking about pardon. I'm not talking about just blanket forgiveness. Because blanket forgiveness and pardon means, yes, you were guilty, but we're not going to put judgment on you. God doesn't offer just that. What God offers is a removing and a wiping of the slate, meaning that your sins are put as far as the east is from the west, never to be spoken of or remembered again. Meaning that you are made as someone who had never sinned. But that's not it. 
Because if that was it, it would be praiseworthy. But if all God did was wipe your sins away, you would last about 10 minutes before you messed it up again. No, He then takes the righteousness of Christ, all this merit, all this good that Christ did and accomplished and earned, and He attributes it to your account. He imputes the righteousness of account of Christ's account into you. So that when you stand before God, you stand not as someone who had sinned but was forgiven. Not as someone who has never sinned but never done any good. No, you stand as someone who has not, never sinned and has done all the wondrous things Christ did because of what Christ accomplished on your behalf. He didn't just die for you, He died as you. And you get to participate in that if you choose to believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lois Ann, would you come play the piano? Here's what I want to do. Obviously, I've been, I've been working towards this the entire time. Here's what I want to do. We're going for the next several months preach about nothing but Jesus Christ. I resolve to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So for the next several months, we are going to preach about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Who He is, what He did, what He accomplished. Jesus. But we cannot start that series off without giving you the opportunity to know the one we're going to talk about. I don't care. I want everyone to close your eyes while Miss Lois plays. I don't care if you've been in church for 50 years. I don't care if this is your first time ever stepping in a church. But if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you don't know that you know that you know that if you were to die today, that you would stand before God and be allowed access into His eternal abode, then I want you to come to the front. Not slip your hand up. We did that a few weeks ago. Pastor Mike did a great job. Slip your hands up. Let me know. I'll pray for you. That was great. But now is the time for boldness. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to come and I want to pray with you and I want to give you the opportunity to say, I have never believed in my heart that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. I have never believed that He was raised from the dead after dying for my sins. And I have never confessed Him as my Lord and surrendered my life to Him. I would like to do that today. I'm going to give you the opportunity. We're only going to take a few minutes. I'm not going to wait forever and I'm not going to beg you to come. But as she plays, I want to give you the opportunity.